Welcome to PantherCast, the official podcast of TMI Episcopal, where we share stories from our alumni, updates about the school, and help you reconnect and discover what the TMI community is all about. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of TMI's PantherCast podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Director of Community Relations. For those of you who may have noticed that we did not release a podcast this past Sunday, I want to let you know that I have our most recent chapel talks here for you to listen on today's podcast. We'll be modifying the tempo of the podcast episode releases back to Thursdays only to help give you a chance to keep up. So I'll be sharing our senior chapel talks every other Thursday and then alternating weeks with our Padre cast and faculty, student, or alumni interviews. So today, I'm pleased to bring you the audio of our most recent senior chapel talks by Jake Flynn, John Chen, Owen Guo, and Victoria Yin, TMI class of 2019. And remember, we'd love to hear your feedback on the podcast. You can always email us at panthercast at tmi-sa.org or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So without further ado, enjoy this first Senior Chapel Talk by Jake Renshaw Flynn. On February 8th, 2003, Matthew Duncan Flynn was born in Harlingen, Texas. He weighed in at 11 pounds and 5 ounces, still being four weeks early. Soon after his birth, it was determined that he was very sick and they had to run many tests on him. The doctors found that Matthew had an incredibly rare, rare genetic disease called nasidioblastosis. This disease caused his pancreas to deliver insulin into his bloodstream nonstop. The insulin produced caused the blood sugar in his, in his body dangerously low. To combat this, to keep him alive, the doctors pumped absurd amounts of sugar into his bloodstream to match the amount of insulin. A week after his birth and his diagnosis, Matt was flown to Houston by the, by the transport team at Texas Children's Hospital. My mother, who like most of your mothers, couldn't leave her son's side, flew in the helicopter with Matt and the medical team. My dad and I drove up to meet them. I can't imagine what was going through their heads as we rushed me with my mother and my brother. I was so young, so I don't remember much, but I do remember the hospital doors and all the machines hooked up to my little brother. After Matt's arrival, the doctor's diagnosis of the disease was confirmed. They began to prep for a specifically dangerous surgery, but other complications surfaced. Matt had become even more ill as his body went to septic shock and all of his organs had began to fail. After more tests, they found he had a blood infection because of all the sugar they were pumping into him through his IV. After a long, hard month of intense treatment in the hospital, Matt was finally cleared to have surgery. Matthew underwent two surgeries, resulting in in the removal of his pancreas, all of this in the first month on this earth. The surgeons and doctors told us that there was little known about this disease at the time. They broke the news that more surgeries might be necessary for my brother. There was not a cure for it. The surgery was was the only way to give Matt as much of a normal life as they could. I was only two years old at the time and couldn't understand why why my baby brother was not at home. For those of you who have younger siblings, even if you fight with them now, chances are you thought they were pretty cool when your parents first brought them home from the hospital. I couldn't understand why my brother wasn't coming home. For three months, he was in the hospital in Houston with my mom by his side while I lived with my grandparents back in Harlingen, Texas. My dad would go back and forth quite often from Harlingen to Houston, sometimes taking me along. When I did get to visit, my family and I lived in the Ronald McDonald House. There were Ronald McDonald Houses all over the country. The Ronald McDonald House provides temporary living, 
accommodations for children and families while they receive critical medical treatment. I would go and see Matt on a hospital floor where most of the kids were very delicate and needed active medical attention. Throughout the three months there, Matt had many trips to the operating room along with many life-threatening incidences. Eventually he was allowed to come home, but he was still really sick. He needed around-the-clock care for my parents and frequent visits to the hospital. He had a problem swallowing his food, so he was fed through a G-tube directly to his stomach, along with 22 doses of medicine a day for nearly three years. For nearly the next 10 years, Matt had several more surgeries and operations to keep him healthy. On top of all of this, Matthew was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. For a while, he struggled with reading and writing, but got the hang of it and impressed everyone in many of his classes. Once Matt got to fourth grade at nine years old, he, he was diagnosed with type one diabetes, which his first doctors predicted might happen. He had to prick his finger and test his blood sugar four times a day based off his blood sugar reading. If it was too high, he had to have a, a shot of insulin introduced to his bloodstream. If it was too low, he had to eat or drink something sugary to bring it back to a healthy level. All the memories I can remember of Matt as a baby was him always smiling. He cried when he was around the doctors, but at home he was always happy. I remember one night just when we started sharing a room, I woke up in the middle of the night, looked over at him, standing up with his hands above him on the rail of his crib, looking at me while laughing and jumping up and down. Nothing had changed his boy's happiness. Growing up with Matt as a brother has been quite the journey. Everything I did, Matt wanted to do. He followed me into the backyard and played almost any game with me as a little kid, all the while having complete joy in everything he did. Today, Matt is 16 years old and a sophomore at Harlingen High School South. He plays football and basketball and is a good athlete, especially considering how far he's come and what he's been through. Matt is the toughest, happiest, and no doubt one of the funniest kids I know. Many of you know Matt and can attest to how happy he is. My friends will tell you that he is one of the grooviest and most fun-loving people they know. Matt is now six feet tall and is in perfect health. He also likes to brag about how much more weight he can lift than me and how much more he weighs, which is very important to football players. But we all know that the big brother is still the best athlete in the, fin in the Flynn family. Although we give each other a hard time quite often, there's something very cool about having a brother. No one makes me as mad as he does. No one makes me laugh as much as he does. And there's no one that I am more proud of than Matt. There's no one else in this world I'd rather call my brother. I hope all of you value and are thankful for your siblings and relatives. You never know how valuable they truly are. Matt, you're an amazing friend and brother, and I'm sorry for not being the nicest brother to you or the most encouraging. But you were and are a huge blessing to the Flynn family. There aren't many, there aren't many stories like yours or boys that I can compare to you. Even though we both get on each other's nerves, even though we both get on each other's nerves all the time, you will always be my brother, and for that I'm thankful. No matter what, I love you. Thank you. Our second featured talk is by Victoria Yin. I was standing in the middle of one of the most crowded places in the world, Nanjing Railway Station. Here, you use square miles to measure the total area, but you can only use your fingernails to measure the space in which you gasp for breath. Sweat, luggage, dialects, sticky floor, dirty hands and faces, food, makeup, cigarettes, coffee. You have no way to escape. People behind you push you forward. The next moment, 
I would go deeper into the crowd. So I took a deep breath, as if storing oxygen and accumulating courage before diving in. The crowded second-class carriage was not better, filled with babies crying, corals, and a strange mix of smells of instant noodles and sweat. Based on my dissatisfaction with this experience, when my grandparents planned to visit their siblings in Changsha, I bought first-class tickets for them. Since the trip would take five hours, I thought sitting there motionlessly in a cramped and rowdy second-class carriage would not be a reasonable choice for my 71 years old grandparents. But my phone rang. I got a call from my grandpa. Why did you buy the first-class tickets? We can't arrive early, but the tickets are twice the price of the second-class one. Don't do that again. Call ended. Of course, they had the ability to afford the price. More than once, I implied that there was no need to save money like that at their age. But my grandpa always replied that wasting money on unnecessary things makes people indulge in peace and comfort, and thus losing the valuable spirit to strive, which is a core value of life. And he would keep on going, bringing up the topic to me and my brother, especially for your generation. You carry the future of our family, so it's your responsibility to experience the arduous life journey. I didn't understand his choice and his words. From my perspective, the motivation of striving is to live a rather calm and cozy life. So to enjoy life is not wrong, and there's no need to intentionally experience difficulty if I can avoid it. When I was immersed in watching favorite movies on TV yet again. My grandpa appeared from nowhere like a phantom. Without being noticed, he picked up the remote control and switched to news or economics channels talking about stock markets. You should watch this, he said. I believe the fans of Star Wars and Harry Potter could understand my disappointment at those moments. Actually, this was not the first time I thought my grandpa was unreasonable. I thought my grandpa was completely mad when he said. Don't major in literature in the college. You could do that for entertainment, but literature shouldn't be your career. Economics should be your direction because it is a rich source of bread. How could you feed your family only by writing books? I was bewildered and shocked. From my childhood, I was told by my parents and teachers to follow my heart and pursue the career I was interested in. Material wealth was not the first thing to consider. Accordingly, there was no way for me to empathize with my grandpa and his biased view of careers. I even showed a little contempt for the outdated view of treating the economic field as superior. To be honest, I thought my grandpa's words were totally nonsense and gibberish. But one thing I was pretty sure about was that there was no need for me to explain my side to my grandpa at this point, because the Grand Canyon lay between our thoughts. I was on the reasonable side, and I belonged to the new generation who followed the step of the age. As to my grandpa, he was born in the late 1940s, when basic education was not even a thing in China. I sat on the throne of absolutely right until one day this summer, when my grandpa told me to sit down and listen. I did so accordingly, but unwillingly, still remembering that when I was back from the U.S. and expected a big and warm hug, he greeted me with these words: 
Tell me about the differences between the American economy and the Chinese economy. But this time, he kept silent for a few seconds, as if thinking of where to begin. And he raised his eyes, staring not at me but at the farthest point. I wondered whether he was looking at himself across space and time. Peacefully, but with tears in his eyes, he uncovered a period of history to which I had no access before. He said, "At the age of 16, I kneeled beside the bed of my father, who devoted his whole life to helping others, but remained in poverty. Listening to his last words, stand out from the crowd. As the eldest son, I needed to carry the responsibility of supporting the whole family, my mother and six siblings." My youngest sister was just four months old, and I was just 16. We were so poor; eight people crowded in a 20 square meter old shabby house. When it rained, the water penetrated through the roof and accumulated on the mud floor, full of bumps and hollows. I carried my youngest brother to the hospital. He was so ill and would have died if we hadn't gotten help from a nice doctor who paid for us. After 55 years, I still remember the words "stand out from the crowd." I was totally absorbed into the intangible history of my grandpa, even though I had learned Chinese contemporary history and knew that the 1950s, 60s, and the 70s were the most turbulent age, with the widespread famine, the Cultural Revolution, and the rapid socialist construction. I never put my grandpa back into that age. I cannot imagine him literally un- undergoing all this, while I read history from a textbook and treated it as fiction. Holding the determination to feed his family, my grandpa did all kinds of jobs and at the same time read Marx and other books about economics and politics. When he successfully perceived the dawn of Chinese economic reform, opened up his small company and invested all his savings to produce insulated material, his customer refused to pay the bill. So he went along a trip, crossing half of China, to get an answer from his customer. He said that, 1985 winter, during the Chinese New Year, when everyone was at home and gathered with their family. I was waiting at the train station. It was so cold and snowing heavily. The carriage was covered with green iron sheets, and the seat was hard and frozen. I was the only one in the carriage. I bought the worst liquor and forced myself to swallow it down. The alcohol was burning my stomach. You know, I can't drink and never drink. But I was so cold. The alcohol warmed me up, but I got dizzy. And I understood something. There were reasons for my grandpa's unreasonable view. He strived, starting from nothing. He fed his family. He set up the foundation for the future generation, and he wanted to pass the spirit down. But I never needed to worry even a little about clothing, food, and housing. And I judged my grandpa based on my own experience. I'm not saying who is right or who is wrong. The whole thing is about understanding. When we had a chance to write a practice chapel talk in our junior year, I boldly claimed that people always emphasized their miseries and ended their stories with the miserable parts to win sympathy. They were not telling the truth, I said indignantly, 
because my life was rather calm and peaceful, and even though there were some unhappy parts, they were too temporary to be called as miseries. As a result, I neglected others' miseries. Now I realize how often I judged others as if I was the god standing on the truth and defining others as wrong. My judgment was just based on my own reason. According to Michel Foucault, people are trapped into another kind of madness when they confine others to the mad category to maintain their own reason. Don't rush to a conclusion and confine others to a category. There may be stories behind their actions. Thank you. Our third featured talk is by Owen Guo. This is a roll of zip a duct tape, and this is the dozen of zip ties. These are common things we find in life that have their own uses and purposes. But what can you possibly make out of these things? If you have never been to the TMI robotics team, then please allow me to answer this rhetorical question for you. My answer is, well, it had a lot of different things. Walking into the robotics building as a freshman, I pictured students wearing goggles and white coats with a soldering iron in one hand, looking through the magnifier to solder some IC chips onto the green PCBs. Occasionally blowing away the smoke coming out of the tip, and finally they just somehow end up with a fancy robot that can walk on its two legs. But the moment when I push open the white door of the robotics building, everything I dreamed about shattered into pieces. To say my imagination is far from reality would be a gross understatement. TMI's robotics team resembled nothing in my perfect yet ignorant fantasy of what a robotics team should be like. Rather, it teaches me the 10 different ways of using zip ties and duct tapes. Zip ties are good for keeping things together, from uh, electric wires to metal bars and rods, from strings to chains, from structures to frames. It seemed like as long as we need to combine something, we can always reach out to these black plastic stripes for a fi quick fix. Duct tapes serves a similar function. Whenever we need to hold large pieces from dropping, it's easy to tear a measure of duct tape and then stick it to wherever needed. And by the way, it is entirely possible to build your robots out of duct tape. It definitely gets the job done. Whether or not it's a good job is another question, but it certainly deviates far from my perfect image of how a robot is built. And besides robotics, there are way more things that I have held unreasonably perfect imagination in. Over the course of my mere 18 years of life, I constantly in run into the conflicts between my lovely perception of one thing and the cold, hard reality of the true matter. If you ask Ms. Ganim what kind of students Owen was back in his freshman year, she will surely tell you that I was a very, very stubborn kid who simply couldn't let go his pursuit to perfect each pen stroke, trying to achieve a spotless picture. I was caught up in an unrealistic dream in thinking that perfection is achievable, and thus resulting in me repetitively tearing and ripping all the expensive papers in the art room, causing a lot of troubles to Ms. Ganim and those around me. After pieces and pieces of drawing paper destroyed, I think I finally learned something. Perfection is the goal of our art artists, yet perfectionism 
is the enemy. By perfectionism, I mean the mentality of thinking perfection is a tangible goal which can be reached eventually through painstaking work. There's nothing wrong with striving for perfection, but there's something terribly wrong in thinking that you can achieve it. No work can be perfect, and all of them will contain mistakes. Believing in a tangible perfection not only hinders one's ability to even produce a finished result, but it will also make the efforts ever so painful, leading to the loss of interests in what one loves. Through my high school career, I have too often fell into the trap of thinking there will be a perfect solution for every given situation. The perfect time to pick up new hobby, the perfect weather to ride my bike outside, the perfect tool to use on my engineering project, and the perfect time to <coughs> do Dr. Waddington's math homework. <laughs> I have to find the perfectness in the given task for me to either have a good start or a good result from it. But seldom do I find the perfection I was desperately hoping for in those moments. And more often than never, I found myself bonded in the illusion of chasing after unattainable goals. It is getting harder and harder to lay my pen onto the paper, and I found it difficult to appreciate what I have already done in comparison to what could have been done. Perfection is not something achievable, and therefore, by constantly comparing myself with my imagination, everything I did seemed so trivial and worthless, causing me to throwing away my unfinished works, giving up early. Meanwhile, in robotics, there was a spot on our freshman robot where we simply couldn't fit our Allen wrenches to put a screw on. And without that screw, the structural integrity of our robot's drivetrain might be compromised. If we took apart the robot and rebuilt with a different order, we can enhance the place with more screws connecting the two pieces, two pieces together. But we were out of time. We had spent weeks building two prototype robots that we, deci we decided to discard. So, we were running against the clock to finish the current design before our first competition. And under Will Lu's tremendous wisdom, we ended up reaching to the zip ties to tie the two structures together. It certainly was not the ideal solution, but it was one solution. It may not have been something to be proud of, but surely way better than, not having, uh, than having our chassis fall apart during the competition or wasting time to rebuild it. As our season went on, I was gradually influenced by the, putting it nicely, special approach to the problems in robotics. Having things built elegantly certainly is the best, yet it would be nothing if the robots as a whole does not work. Letting go the imperfections in small places in exchange for a bigger success is important, and being blindsided by the pursuit for perfect finishes on every single individual part will lead one to nowhere. Building the robot out of, out of duct tapes certainly is a bad idea, but it is better than not having a robot at all. Having electric wires randomly zip-tied together is better than letting them dangling outside the robot and causing penalties against our teams. All of these are what I consider to be imperfections, yet they provide a reachable solution as opposed to the ghostly ideas living only in my imaginations. Although I am the one who is standing here and giving this advice, it is not to say I am now invulnerable to the temptation to perfect things that I work on. But in fact, I am still constantly tripping myself over by trying to turn the reality to match my dream. This season of robotics was rough from the beginning to the very end, mainly caused by my struggle to make a complicated robot without considering the possibility of my plan. 
As you can tell, I cannot even follow my own advice. And in fact, it is impossible to perfectly adhere to the golden rules one has learned throughout his or her own life. So let me make it easier. Whenever your hard work doesn't translate into your dream results, take a step backward. Let go what you have imagined and adapt. That way, you might actually get closer to your goal. And now, please enjoy our final chapel talk for today by John Chen. Evolution, economy, cybernetics. These are great discoveries and fields of study in human history. And in evolution, you have the natural selection. In economy, you have the invisible hand, a metaphor for the forces of supply and demand. And in cybernetics, we create similar systems to them ourselves. These are self-stabilizing systems. The perspective we gain from them is called systems thinking. They are everywhere in this universe, and they constitute countless beautiful things. But it is really easy, even for the scholars, to forget that these are constitutes of just countless tiny interactions between individuals. And throughout this travel talk, we must remember this all the time. It all started small. But in 1991, a leading computer engineer from California gave a dramatic demonstration. He was called Lauren Carpenter. He invited hundreds of people to a large shed. On each seat was a small paddle, and in front of them was a giant screen. We told them nothing for a while. We just left, them, left the things on the seats, and people would pick this up and look at it and say, what's that? And then somebody noticed that there's little red and green dots up there on the screen, and this is red and green. So maybe that has something to do with that. That would be that. Okay, there I am. And when that happened, the room erupted. Just totally spontaneous. We didn't say anything. Carpenter then began an experiment. He projected the early computer game Pong. Each half of the audience jointly controlled the bat on their side of the screen. If an individual held up red on their paddle, a computer sensor picked it up and the bat on the screen went down. If they held up green, it went up. But they had to operate it together. When the game is being played and the ball is going back and forth, if it's down here and it's headed that way, some people are going to have to show red to keep it from going all the way to the top. If everybody just showed green, it would slam up to the top and the ball would miss. So something happened in that group of people where some decided to show green and some decided to show red to cause it to stop in the right place. And we have no idea what did that. believed that what he had created was a model of a society where there was no hierarchy, where everyone made their own decisions without guidance. Yet because they were linked by the machines, out of it came a stability and an order. 
So they're all acting as individuals because each one of them can decide what they're going to do. They have total freedom about what to decide to do. But there's an order. There's a, an order that emerges that gives them a kind of a, of a an amoeba-like effect where they're, they surge and, and they play. It was kind of in the nature of an experiment. I wanted to see if no hierarchy existed at all, what would happen. And what did happen? They formed a, um, a kind of a, 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 um, a subconscious consensus. All right. So that experiment run by Lauren Carpenter should give you a good enough insight into the systems that we are going to talk about, even if you haven't learned evolution or economy uh, yet. And remember, there's nothing too special about it. There's no superpower or divine power behind it. It's just tiny signals of green and red. It all started really small. And we, all of us in this chapel, all of us in the United States, all the people on the earth, we form systems like this. We are all here because of evolution, and evolution is a system through which we, the people, are selected. And then we, in turn, we create our own system, and the economy can demonstrate to us how we humans, in all scales, would interact with each other and approach an equilibrium, at which the maximum utility, or say the maximum happiness, would be achieved. And inside this grand system we built, we are also dependent on smaller cybernetic systems that we created ourselves. When I moved to college, one of the first things I want to buy is a sous vide machine. And basically what it does is you can vacuum seal your food and then you can water bath it. And this machine would automatic, automatically control the temperature for you. And, but the actual mechanism is fairly simple. If the water is too hot, you cool it down. If it's not at the target temperature yet, you heat it up. This is just one of the multiple feedback systems that we created ourselves. All right, hopefully these all make perfect sense. And now let me describe some anti, uh, counterintuitive facts about them. While I was thinking on this subject, one question suddenly appeared to me. And this question planted its seeds in my EpiCam class. What about entropy and the second law of thermodynamic? Doesn't entropy inevitably increase in a closed system? Wait, but entropy is the idea of disorder, right? How can a system reach an equilibrium, which means stability, but also be disordered and chaotic? The answer is surprising yet actually very reasonable. The system reaches its equilibrium precisely when it reaches its maximum entropy. To understand that, we must think about the idea of entropy more carefully. Entropy not only means disorder, it also means irreversibility. But most of the time, most of the time we focus on the disorder and not the irreversibility. In fact, irreversibility is essential with the understanding of entropy. For instance, if I mix milk with coffee, which is a typical example when you, when you are going to give a lecture about entropy, right? Yes, there is more disorder, but actually, if you just look at it, 
when it, the milk is perfectly mixed with the coffee, you can't really easily tell the disorder from it. But what you can easily tell is the irreversibility, that the milk is not going to come out from the coffee and become milk again. And now with this understanding of irreversibility, we can understand why the system is at its maximum entropy when it reaches its equilibrium. Now let's go back to our human system of economy and market. This complex and useful system maximizes the utility of us. But how does the utility get maximized? Well, we maximize our production. We produce more. And if we choose to spend our time uh, in our daily life to, uh, let's say, study instead of daydreaming, you'll be called you are living a more productive life, right? This is we making the best use of resources, such as time and energy. And after the market's equilibrium, we make maximum production. And actually, production is in most cases irreversible. For instance, you can't just expect paper to turn back into trees. Or you, you can't just expect cheeseburgers to turn back into cattle. So in another word, we are creating the most irreversibility at the equilibrium. And natural selection, the system from which all came from, contributes similarly to the entropy of the universe. Evolution picks the combination of lives that survive the best. And one great thing of life is that we really convert energy quickly. And just think about how much chemical reactions you are having in you and other lives right now. Right? And when we convert useful energy into useless energy, entropy increase. Also, on an even larger scale, for it to be really successful at surviving, we need a lot of diversity. And what's driving that is the mutations at the molecular level. And mutations themselves are instances of disorder. Evolution in this perspective is driven by the second law of thermodynamics. From both a macro and a micro level, they are strongly connected. All right, now you understand basically the ideal situation of system and how to look at the whole world from that perspective. And now let's us bring the evil guys in. The misfortunes and problems that we are having inside these seemingly perfect systems of system. War, hunger, disease, hatred. These are the evil guys. But remember, it all started small. So let us go to an easier example. Traffic. Let's imagine it's a sunny day and thousands of cars are driving peacefully and uniformly on a freeway. Suddenly, the first car have something happen, really tiny thing in front of him. So he stopped, and then he accelerated back into its normal speed. However, the second car has to wait for the first car to move a certain distance and back to its normal speed. Then it can accelerate. And the third car has to wait for the second car, and it goes on. So let's say it takes three seconds for the information of you can accelerate to pass to the next car. The 10th car would need 30 seconds to wait. 
the 100th car would need 300 seconds to wait, and so on. You see, that's how traffic jams start. And what is causing it is the time that is needed for the information to flow. Or let's say, the inefficiency of the flow of information. This blockage of information, this blockage of information causes so many problems in this world that you won't even believe it. Why doesn't the US have a totally free market? If the market can solve so many things, why do we still need a government? Well, the answer is sometimes the cost in communication in the market is greater than the benefit that's brought by the communication. For instance, if you got hit by a car that is driving and lost one of your arms, now imagine I own the car that hits you. Now you lose your arm and you want me to pay you back, right? And you're going to charge me an insane amount of money. But me, I'm going to treat that arm you lost as a sunk cost. And I'm not going to willing to pay that money. So we will waste resource and energy fighting and suing each other in the court, and even worse, even resort to violence. In that situation, the cost in communication has increased so much that communication is no longer beneficial to us. Therefore, in reality, the United States requires a third party to determine the price for your arm. And that's when government is needed, right? So that we don't further waste resource. Yes, waste. You see, as the second law of thermodynamics says, the entropy inevitably increase. So we are not going to stop that process by just inefficiently transferring information. No. Instead, we are just creating entropy meaninglessly. War and violence, for instance, is one of the many ways we waste energy and resource. It is meaningless blockage of information that will cause a decrease in the meaning and values of our lives. And this makes perfect sense, because meaning itself is relies on information. Now, what is meaning? I thought it correlates with information. But also, I feel it is necessary for us to view meaning from a subjective perspective. Now, just to grasp what meaning is, let's talk about the cookie that I'm going to buy from Cafe 18. Case one, I can eat it and use it as a source of energy for my studying and then it gets flushed out from the toilet. Case two, I just throw that cookie into the toilet and flush it down. I believe to all of us, case one is much more meaningful than case two. Both of them increase the entropy of the system by destroying the cookie. But one has meaning in it, and one does not. Although this is not a perfect definition on the idea of meaning, it may help us distinguish the meaningful from the meaningless. On a blank sheet of paper, you can either paint an art piece, or you can just draw some random nonsense stuff on there. But one has meaning, and one does not. And from there, I think, sorry, I am able to address one of the biggest questions we all have. What is the meaning of life? I mean, what is the meaning of human beings? 
we are just driving the universe toward its maximum entropy, aren't we? Like, so the longer we exist, the closer we are to the maximum entropy that we may call death. Yes, absolutely. But from the cases of either the cookie or the paper, time was not in the consideration of the meaning. Instead, the idea of meaning is much tilted toward the quality side. And yes, when we say someone has lived a meaningful life, we never say that he just lived a great quantity of time. We say that his life has a great quality. We human beings, collectively, are also aiming for the same thing. We are trying to achieve an equilibrium, a maximum entropy, and an efficient system so that we get the most meaning from that production of irreversibility and disorder. That is the meaning of us. Okay. Till now, I have started from the basic human interactions to talk about evolution, economy, cybernetics, system, and meaning of being human. Well, that's a bunch of philosophy and universe right here. All right, now we can talk a little bit about how this connects with our everyday lives. And let us from the big pictures and move downward gradually. What is causing the loss of meaning? The block of information. The block of information caused inefficient systems. And we would have war instead of trade. We would have um, hatred instead of discussion. And when we are not open to each other, we talk about each other, and we don't talk to each other. This block of information is the boss that we need to find. Hey, but we already know its identity and the mechanism, and we can use systems thinking to conquer it. What you can do is actually fairly simple. Just keep an open mind. Keep your brain open for outside information, and be courageous in expressing yourself. You see? What you are doing right now, then, is minimizing the cost of the flow of information, and consequently, maximizing the flow of information. By doing this, when you meet problems in even your daily lives, you don't have to attempt to solve all the problems by yourself, and you get the maximum meaning out of it. Look, you are just a normal person, and you are not a supercomputer. You are prone to error. Personally, I have always have attempted to solve problems by myself, and I promise you, it fails a lot. So use the system instead. Keep an open mind, talk to others, communicate. I know I have used a lot of big words and big ideas, but this is a really simple message. I hope systems thinking can help you answer all the why questions and give your life some meaning. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TMI's PantherCast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback and show ideas, so leave us a comment, email, or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter using at TMI Episcopal. 
For more news, ways to connect, and to learn about upcoming events on campus, visit our website at www.tmi-sa.org.